Well, good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. As uh, Eric said, my name is Greg Brandenburg, and it's a joy to be able to bring you God's Word today. I'm going to try to figure out a simple music stand. Look at that. going to need that. That's great. And our text for today, and you can begin turning there or booting up or whatever you need to do, get there. We're going to look at James chapter 1 today. So if you would like to turn to James chapter 1, that will be our text for today. But by way of introduction, I would like to read you a story, if that's okay. I have a lot of young people here today, probably a lot of, a lot of young people listening. So I'm going to read you a story. This is an old German folktale, and I think, it, I think it introduces the passage well, which is why I've, I've looked at this uh, uh, tale. Um, as all good German folktales, there's no telling who wrote this or how old it is, but it's old. And uh, actually, you probably all know it. The name of this German folktale is uh, Schneeweissen. Right? We all know this. Do we? Anybody? No? Okay. I'm going to prove that you know it because we're going to all quote it together, right? So you finish the quote. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? See, you know it. Everybody knows Schneeweissen. Now, I, I, even though I have German heritage, I don't speak German, so I may have mispronounced it. That may have been what threw you off there. For all I knew, that's a type of beer. I don't know. But, but clearly we know that Schneeweiss in the translation is Snow White. This is, this is the tale of Snow White. And again, I think it introduces the text well, and I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read a part of it anyway. Uh, but as you, as you listen to it, listen for... Uh, the religious symbolism that was, that was stitched into this, I believe is there. Uh, here's how it goes. Once upon a time in, in midwinter, when the snowflakes were falling like feathers from heaven, a queen sat sewing at her window, which had a frame of black ebony wood. As she sewed, she looked up at the snow and pricked her finger with the needle, and three drops of blood fell into the snow. Now, just as an aside, I don't know why she was snowing or sewing, hanging outside the window. I don't, don't press it too hard. It's just a fable. Three drops of blood fell into the snow. The red on the white looked so beautiful, and she thought to herself, if only I had a child as white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as the wood in this frame. Soon afterwards, she had a little daughter who was white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as ebony wood. And therefore, they called her Little Snow White. And as soon as the child was born, the queen died. A year later, the king took to himself another wife. She was a beautiful woman, but she was proud and arrogant. And she could not stand it if anyone might surpass her in beauty. She had a magic mirror. And every morning, she stood before it, looked at herself, and said, Mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? To this, the mirror answered, you, my queen, are fairest of all. Then she was satisfied, for she knew that the mirror only spoke the truth. Keep that in, in mind. Only spoke the truth. Snow White grew up and became ever more beautiful. When she was seven years old, she was as beautiful as the light of day, even more beautiful than the queen herself. One day when the queen asked her mirror, 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 on the wall, who in this land is fairest of all? 
It answered, you, my queen, are fair, tis true, but Snow White is a thousand times fairer than you. The queen took fright and turned yellow and green with envy. From that hour on, whenever she looked at Snow White, her heart turned over inside her body. So great was her hatred for the girl. The envy and pride grew ever greater like a weed in her heart until she had no peace day and night. And that's where I will stop that fable. And if you'd like to read that and finish it at home, feel free. Don't use the Grimm brothers, by the way. This tale was picked up by the Grimm brothers and, correct, and collected by them. And uh, it, as, as the name implies, it's pretty grim um, if you've ever read the Grimm brothers' tales. <laughs> Uh, the Disney version was uh, much more family-friendly, let's put it that way. James chapter 1, I, I say this, this by way of introduction. This story, I think, is a good introduction because it introduces us to some concepts here. And as I said, I think there's some religious symbolism here in the story of Snow White. You've got the three drops of blood. You've got a poison apple that kills. You've got the number seven in terms of the seven dwarves. You've got... There's a lot going on there, but, but the most obvious religious symbolic thing that I think, and may come even right out of Scripture, is this idea of a mirror that when you look into it only tells you the truth. Now look at James chapter 1, and perhaps this is the inspiration for, for Snow White. I don't know that, but I like to think that. Um, and James chapter 1 says this, my dear brothers, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word who does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So I'd like to really give you a quick outline of what we're going to do here is we're just going to walk through that passage verse by verse. And, and my goal, I understand my goal here as, as, as a preacher, as someone who would, would teach you God's Word, is not to give you my opinion and try to get out of the way of James. James wrote this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So my goal here is to tell you what I think James meant. Now, you may disagree with me. That's fine. That's your job, actually, as believers in Jesus Christ, which should all be looking at this. But the idea here is to get to the idea that James meant to convey. So I'm going to give you the big idea, and then we'll walk through this verse by verse. And then I'm going to give you uh, three um, applications at the end of this, okay? So that's, that's what I'm going to attempt to do. Here's what I think the big idea is. And that is, that is simply this. I've tried to state it more of a, in, a, in, a, in a pastor preaching kind of way, which is in order to believe, you must be ready to receive, right? In order to believe, you must be ready 
to receive. God's word is a mirror that only speaks the truth. It brings freedom and blessing to those who are willing to humbly accept what it says. So that's what I think the big idea is here from James. So let's dig into it and get right into it with James chapter 1. Verses, uh, let's start with the first two verses. My dear brothers and sisters, but let's stop right there because this is clearly going to help us set this up in terms of who James is talking to. He says, my dear brothers and sisters. He's not talking to his family, right? He's talking to his, his believing family. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So James is writing to believers. Uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus. And James, um, unlike Paul, Paul and James were contemporary, and they will meet one another. Uh, scripture records in Acts chapter 15, James hung out in Jerusalem, and James become the, becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, being Jewish, stays in Jerusalem and helps to start this uh, church. And James essentially becomes a, an apostle to the Jews, whereas Paul, who is also Jewish, becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, but James starts this letter by, uh, by writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ. If you look back at the very beginning of James, it says, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 1, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So James is writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered because of persecution, perhaps, who have been scattered out uh, to the nations. So he writes, my dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So that helps us to establish, not only is James writing to believers, it helps us to understand what he's addressing in, in this church. Now, this is a general epistle. It wasn't meant for a specific church, but he was writing to a specific issue here, which is interesting. If we look at this verse, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It kind of helps us understand maybe some of the conditions uh, that James was addressing. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. If we also examine um, and skip down to verse 26, this kind of bookends it. If we look at verse 26, uh, it says... If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. So he's also talking about being very careful with what we say. He's also talking about a people who care about looking religious. Now that's going to become very contemporary in terms of as we get to application with this. But just consider at this point that it's James writing to believers and these believers want to be seen as religious and righteous, but they have a problem. And that problem is speak too quickly and be too angry. Okay, so those are the issues he's addressing as we get through this. 21 and 22, he says, uh, oh, let me back up, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Again, that idea of righteousness is there, as Paul is saying to them, if you care about righteousness, you got to address the anger issue. <clears throat> Excuse me. 21 and 22. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. 
do what it says. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. But we said that James is addressing believers. So the question is, why does he say that this can save you? Aren't they already saved? And, and so we have to pause and talk for a little bit about salvation. Because as Eric has said before, salvation has, has three senses in the word. So when we see the word saved, we often think of just, just justification, right? That I accepted Jesus Christ and I'm saved from the penalty of hell. I'm going to need that water. <coughs> I, I told my wife, she said, don't forget your water. And I said, nah, I won't need it. Thank you. Myra, my wife, everybody, Myra, big hand for Myra. <laughs> salvation, then, you have, to say, uh, you have to ask yourself, what does he mean by salvation in this context? I believe he's not talking about that, that first phase of salvation, which we talk about, which is justification, okay? So justification is, is saved from the penalty of sin. That's the first phase of justification, or the first phase of salvation that we often think is the definition of salvation. The biblical writers use it in three senses. There is that past tense that is true. I am saved from the penalty of sin. That is justification. But salvation can also refer to sanctification. That's the second issue or the second phase of salvation, which is I am being saved. And this is true of all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. We are currently being saved from the power of sin. So if you, so if you accept Jesus Christ, you're saved from the penalty of sin. That's past tense. That's a one-and-done kind of thing. But then you enter into sanctification, which is, which is being saved from the power of sin over my life. That is a process that, that I enter into. So in that sense, we are, as believers, all being saved currently. And I think that is the sense that James is speaking to here and talking to these believers and saying, you want to appear as righteous. If you want to be saved in the sanctification sense, here's what you have to pay attention to. There, there is also a third sense of salvation uh, that, that Scripture uses when it speaks of saves, that it, it may be talking about future tense glorification in which we will be saved from the presence of sin. So you have to ask yourself, anytime you see the word saved, is what did the author intend, right? So what did James mean by saved in this tense? I don't think it was past tense because he's writing to believers. That's taken care of. And I don't think it's glorification yet. I think he's talking about sanctification. I think he's talking about in the sense where they want to be seen as righteous, they want to be seen as religious, and James is saying, let's get to the root of this. Here's some things you have to take care of. So he says, therefore... Get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And the, and the other problem would be if we thought of that salvation as being justification, <clears throat> what James would be saying is uh, get, get rid of all moral filth and evil first and then you can be saved. Well, we know that's not right because that's called salvation by works, okay? And that's clearly not the issue here. Um, the, I love this term, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. The idea here is, is, uh, is we have to come to the word of God with the right attitude in order to be changed by it. Getting rid of all moral filth and evil. I love the King, how the King James renders that um, evil. It's, it is the superfluity of naughtiness. I love that. That's really naughty. So, 
So it's interesting, too, as you talk to believers in Jesus Christ, there's really, there's really two sticking points to sanctification, isn't there? There are those who think they're too good to improve, right? I, I don't need that. I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to improve. I'm, I'm doing just fine. And, and that is an obstacle to sanctification. Or there's the other side, which is the superfluity of naughtiness side, which is getting, there, there is a sense in which moral filth and evil will drag us down and block and hinder our sanctification. So James addresses that. Get rid of it that is so prevalent. Take it off, he said, that, and, and humbly, humbly, it becomes the key word here, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you, because you have to come to the word humbly. If I feel that I'm too good to listen to that stuff, if I'm just fine, then I, that's not coming humbly to the word of God. Or if I feel like uh, I'm so bad, I don't, you know, I can't improve or whatever. That, that in a sense, is a, a sense of reverse pride, I think. Humbly accept the word planted in you. Again, another little hint that he's talking to believers, which can save you, sanctification. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. That seems pretty obvious, right? We, we don't just come to listen that's not enough. The Bible was not intended to be an audio book that we just listen to and check it off the list. It is intended to change us. And so, James emphasizes, do what it says. Verse 23 and 24, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I don't know why James did this. It's interesting, though, that he's, this is the NIV translation. You, you may have in your translation that anyone who listens to the word and doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And I know what NIV is trying to do. They're trying to make it androgynous in that sense. But, but the actual word, it's, it's not the word for mankind here. As James writes this, it's actually a male. So I don't know. It's, it's a, I guess the male's... Uh, uh, odd quirk about looking in a mirror as we go look at ourselves and, and we could look horrible and walk away and go, yeah, whatever. You know, so I, I guess it's just kind of disregard that. Uh, so Paul uses this analogy of a mirror as an analogy of the Bible in that the Bible's job is a mirror to your soul. It looks into your soul and it tells you only the truth. And then you get to choose how you react to it. Not to, prove a, uh, not to improve on Scripture, but I, I, I like to use uh, the analogy of a, of a bathroom scale, because maybe it speaks more to how I behave <laughs> as to what a bathroom scale is telling me. But, <clears throat> uh, I mean, we're all struggling with the COVID-19, right? So, but I'm not talking about the virus. I'm talking about the, the, you know, the COVID-19 pounds that... I don't know what's happened to my eating habits. I, I don't know. I... I mean, it's awful. I mean, it's, it, I guess I'm, I'm thinking, well, the world's going to end tomorrow. I might as well eat whatever I want, right? It's, it's horrible. It's like, give me the $5 carbohydrate box. Yeah, why not? Oh, man. I'm, I'm just uh, porking it down. It's, it's, it's bad. Uh, so the COVID-19 is a real thing for me. I have acquired it, really. I, but it's about the 19 pounds. So, uh, but, but if you're like me and 
and I'm hoping someone is, uh, or this analogy will fall flat. <laughs> I, have a ba- I have a bathroom scale. Do you all have a bathroom scale? I have a scale in my bathroom. Now, you would think that, there, that it's pretty obvious what the purpose of the scale in my bathroom is, but, but my bathroom scale serves uh, to support my ego in that I, I will not step on my bathroom scale unless there is a really, really good chance that it's going to tell me what I want to hear, <laughs> right? That's the function of a bathroom scale, right? It is ego support, and it's not to tell you the truth, for sure. If you stepped on it and it tells you a lie, you know right away there's something wrong with the scale, right? So that's the purpose of the bathroom scale. That's, uh, and I don't know, I, if there's doctors in the room, I apologize, but if you go to the doctor's office and they put you on the scale, that's terrible, right? Because they always put the scale in the middle of the hallway, right? And, and it, I guess for the carnival atmosphere, I guess. For the, on, ladies and gentlemen, step right up. Watch, watch the fat man. Try to get up on the scale. And then they holler out the weight. You know, He's 220. It's huge. He's obese. He's borderline morbidly obese. Uh, who came up with that term? That's awful. Mor- morbidly obese. That's like, we don't even know why you're still alive. That's like, I can't believe it. But the scale's function is to tell you the truth if you'll accept it, but we don't use it that way. We step around it if it's not going to tell us what we want to hear. That and the mirror are good analogies to tell us that that's the approach to Scripture, right? Scripture's job is to tell you the truth, but we often step right around it if it's not going to tell us what we want to hear. Or we find the sections or the pages in Scripture that are going to tell us what we, hear, what we want to hear, and we avoid the rest. But that's what James is addressing here. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says, what point is that? Is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Um, we are, in essence, I'm going to steal this term from... I think this came from a, guy, a pastor named Tim Kimmel. I love this term. He came up with the term and said, we are, we are image managers. That's what we do, right? We have an image that we build and that we want to project and that this is how we want other people to perceive us. And so we spend a great deal of our time and energy every day managing that image. And it is enslavement. We don't accept what Scripture says about us, but I want you to believe about me what I want you to believe about me. And and I'll post that, and I'll do whatever I need to do to project that image. We are image managers. We really like to to have a a positive viewpoint of ourselves, and we want you to think, you know, that's that's enough about me. Now, what do you think about me, right? So there's a a fun, um, this is an old... uh, a trick someone did. I, uh, this guy, I don't think he was, he's not a believer, he's, and he's passed away. His name was uh, the amazing Randy. And, and he, was, he was showing the uh, fallacy of horoscopes. It was interesting. What he did is, is he, took a, he, he took a college class, and he went into the college class, and he had a horoscope for each of the people, each of the students in the class, right? And he had the horoscope, so he had their, so he had their birth date, he had their name, he put it on the envelope, and then he passed out their, their horoscope based on their birthday to everybody in the class, and, they had, and he had them read it. 
and, and, and uh, he wanted to see if they agreed with what it said. And by and large, everybody was in agreement that this was amazing how, how this was them. Just by, just by their birth date and the, and the alignment of the stars or whatever else, uh, it told them exactly who they were, and they were totally in agreement with what it said. And then he did something interesting. He said, now I want you to take your horoscope, and I want you to pass it to the person behind you and let them read your horoscope. So they did it, and, and they had this on video, and you watched them, and it took them about three, four seconds before they realized, oh, everybody has the same horoscope. He had, he had just duplicated the same horoscope and given it to everybody in the classrooms. They all had the same horoscope, but they all thought, wow, this is exactly me. Now, why is that? Well, because a horoscope doesn't tell you anything negative. It tells you generally everything anybody would want to believe about themselves, right? And, and, so, and so we, being image managers, just buy it. It's like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. So we look for affirmation. We spend a lot of time as image managers looking for affirmation. And, and James says, you, you don't look to your horoscope to find out who you are. This, this is the mirror, okay? This is the scale that you use. Look to this and, and do what it says. Anyone who looks at this as like someone who looks at his, his face in a mirror, after looking at himself, he goes away. If you look at this and you don't do it, what was the point, right? Verse 25, but, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. This is freedom that the word brings. Many people think, well, Christianity is all these rules and regulations and chains and the Bible. If I... Actually, what, what happens is image managing is the chains. That's the bondage. The word brings freedom. And that's what James is trying to get across here. Freedom as opposed to the chains of image management and self-righteousness and false religion. Notice the four steps here. Whoever looks intently, that's step one, look intently into the perfect law. You want to be changed by God's word? Four things. Look intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continue it. That's step two. You look intently to God's word. You continue to look intently to God's word, not forgetting. How do you remember God's word? Not forgetting what you've heard, but step four, doing it. So look intently. Um, keep looking intently, and, and don't forget it, and do it. That's, that's the four steps. That's, it's an interesting, interesting word. It, it's the idea of looking intently into God's Word is the idea of stopping and stooping down to inspect closely. So, so we stop and we pause, and, and we don't just gloss over the Word, but we read it carefully, and we look at it intently. I can't help it but picture the uh, in my mind of, of stooping over to discuss something intently is, is a group of men in a field and, and how they will... If you ever see men like squat down in a field like this together, you know they're talking about something very intently, right? I guess... It, or, or they don't have a pickup truck to, to lean over the bed of the pickup truck because that's where a lot of heavy philosophical discussions happen, right? But no, that's, this is the idea of stopping, stooping down... And, and considering the word intently. So those are the four steps to, to getting to, to life change from God's word. Verse 26 and 27, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves 
and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from becoming polluted by the world. That idea of becoming religious, the idea of religious is taken on a negative term, but the idea of being on the right side or being righteous or being seen as now that the new term is virtuous. I want you to see me as being virtuous, right? So that's kind of replaced the idea of being religious. So, so that is the passage. Uh, 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 to, to wrap it up, I want to talk about just three points of application uh, that, I, that I draw from this um, section of Scripture from the book of James. Uh, and the first point of application is this. God's Word is a mirror that always tells the truth. But in order to believe, you must be ready to receive, right? I must come to God's Word with the right heart in order to be changed by God's Word. So God's Word is a mirror. It always tells the truth. But in order to believe, you must be ready to receive. That, that illustration of the mirror serves to illustrate that principle that you cannot believe what you are not willing to receive, the scale in the bathroom can't help you if you're not willing to step on it and get some bad news every once in a while. You won't internalize truths about yourself if they threaten what you like to think is true of yourself. That's a difficult one. We are, in essence, image managers. And the problem with that image management is it often breaks fellowship with God and one another because I want you to see me as I want you to see me, but if you say something different than that, I will defriend you, right? You're out. But what about God? What does God think of me? Why We need to consider this. The, the queen was fine with the mirror until what? Until it told her something she didn't want to hear. And then she reacted violently by trying, to, by trying to wipe out the, the child. We all have this preconceived notion of ourselves. We are all image managers in this. And we all want to be seen as righteous and, and in, in this way religious. I, I want you to see me in that way. Virtuous, we'll call it. And so we're all image managers. Now, th this is a new term that, I, that I've come across. It's become vogue. And, and the, the, this idea being, uh, uh, it's called virtue signaling. What, what I do to make you think or to project my image is a virtue signal. I want you to believe this about me, so I will virtue signal. Now, obviously, in the age of social media, social media has become huge in terms of this. And so, so a lot of what I do to virtue signal to you, whereas in the old days, we would just go to church. Remember the old days when the first question you would ask someone is, where do you go to church? Now, those, those days are fading away, and now it is, what you know, are you on Instagram? Are you on TikTok? Or, you know, can we be friends on there? And that, and that then becomes my arena for virtue signaling. I, I used to be able to tell about you by where you went to church. That was virtue signaling back in the day, and now we've got technology to, to do that. So, so virtue signaling, it's defined as the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's, particular, or one's position on a particular issue. That is virtue signaling. Anything against my image 
that I've worked so hard by virtue signaling and, and building, anything that works against my image provokes sometimes a violent reaction. Uh, here, let me illustrate this. This is, this is tricky, but let me illustrate it this way uh, by, by giving you uh, this from contemporary culture. If you want to see virtue signaling and a violent reaction, uh, watch how someone behaves when they think you're calling them a racist. Wow. You'll see a violent reaction, and you'll see virtue signaling start, right? Because you'll come up with all kinds of things that prove, hey, I'm not a racist. I got you know, this, 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 this. And, and so you'll see signaling going on, and, and, and you'll see this virtual, um, this, this reaction, sometimes very violent, when, when someone believes that they're being called a racist. Uh, that's, that's generated by this idea of image management, but it's also generated by the, the, this idea of, you've heard the term white guilt, which is an interesting one. Uh, there's, a, there's an author named Shelby Steele who said this, which, I, which I, I'm really wrestling over this. He said, white guilt is not angst over injustices su suffered by others. It is the terror of being stigmatized with America's old bigotries, with being, with being associated with America's old, old bigotries. In other words, I don't feel guilt about those old bigotries. I don't feel guilt about what's happened in the past. I don't, I don't feel that. What I feel is I just don't want to be associated with it. I want you to accept my image of myself. I'm not a bigot. I want you to accept that. If you tell me I'm not a big, I'm going to violently react. I'm, I'm trying to manage my image. And so we spend a great deal of time and energy managing this image. And what we look to to gain affirmation is we look to social media, which is entirely wrong. What we should be looking at in terms of a mirror is this. This is the mirror for who you are. This is the element of truth. Social media is full of fraud. Look to God's word to find out what's true about you. It is your mirror. So, so one application point. God's word is a mirror that always tells the truth. In order to believe, you must be ready to, to receive. You must come humbly before God's word and accept the fact that you may need to adjust something that you may have gained weight, that you may not be the fairest in the land anymore. Be ready to accept that fact. Second application point is this, which goes with the first one, which says this, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. In our current culture, I would say be quicker to listen and even slower to speak. Don't be pressured to speak and understand that when I feel that pressure, where's that coming from? Is that pressure coming from my need to manage my image? Uh, I'll even modernize this even further. Be quick to listen and slow to post. How's that? Facegram Instabook is not the mirror that you should be gazing into, okay? Facebook, Facebook, on my phone, you know? Who is the fairest of them all? Give me a like if you agree, you know, that kind of thing. That's not the mirror. The Bible is God's mirror. Third point, and that is this. 
he, he ends with the idea of, of religion because for these people, they were seeking to be religious and righteous and be seen that way. For us, maybe it's virtue, whatever word you want to use there. But good religion is not image management. Good religion that God accepts is not image management. What does he say? He gets very practical here, and that it is to visit widows and orphans who are widows and orphans. At the time, widows and orphans would be the most vulnerable people James could think of. You want, you want to be seen as religious? Then forget the image management. Go do something. You want to do something? Go help someone who's vulnerable. Who is vulnerable in your path? You, you, want, a, you want a good story about that? Read the Good Samaritan. The man asked, trying to, trying to defend his image, asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus didn't answer the question, not directly. Essentially, he said, are you a good neighbor? And he gave the story about three people who passed by the Samaritan in need. And, and the point being is, who is the vulnerable people in your path that you can help? Help them. Visit with widows and orphans. Look after the vulnerable. Um, I, I, I mentioned the colors that were in Snow White you remember the colors that are emphasized is red, white, and black. I don't know if you, I grew up in a Baptist church and vacation Bible school, and they had the, the wordless book. Do you remember the, what, what, or what did we say it was called? The, the color book or the wordless book. And these were three of the colors that were in that book, right? They, that, that symbolized something. And again, I think maybe, maybe, Snow White was the original wordless book. I don't know what, what the color emphasis was about that. But the, the whole wordless book, which is intended to teach kids about salvation, was, as best they could tell, was invented by a guy named Charles Spurgeon in London who invented it to teach orphans about the love of Jesus Christ and about salvation. Looking after orphans and widows and they're distressed. And then, and then it says, um, keeping yourself pure, looking intently in the word of God, keeping yourself pure, not being stained, um, that last verse, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself being, from being polluted by the world. That, and again, points out to me that James, sometimes James and, and Paul, it's, it's stated don't get along or don't agree theologically. This very clearly is an agreement with Paul who says in Romans 12 too, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And, and so, so the conclusion is this, we, we have a mirror, but we have this problem with image management. And, and so we're constantly trying to project an image uh, of, one, uh, of ourselves so that you will think of, uh, positively about me. You know, we, we started wearing masks, what, back in March, and we're, we're still wearing masks to try to protect us from this virus. But the reality is we've been wearing masks for a long time. We put on a mask every day we go out so that you will see an image of me that I want you to see. 
But God's word is a mirror. It's, it's not social media. It's God's word. And God's word can change you if you will humbly approach it, look intently, continue to do so, don't forget, and do what it says. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for James, for how you inspired him to write, for the truths that you have placed in our path, and, and for this challenge. Father, we thank you uh, that we can look at this mirror, and, and I pray that you would uh, lead us to do so, that we would continue to look at the word of God for the truth about ourselves, to forget about the voices around us, and, and to worry uh, about an, uh, who, what you think about us way more than what anybody else thinks about us. Father, we thank you for this truth. It's challenging. Help us to abide by it, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.